I didn't see this when it happened, but uh, Ben, one of the producers here at This American Life, he saw it. He was in the newsroom here at our home station, WBEZ Chicago, one day when Dan Blumberg arrived for work. And Dan walks in and he's just swollen, like everywhere. Like his, his like here, I'm going to, I'll do the face. It's always like. Oh, wow. You're puffing out your <laughs> cheeks and squinting your eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, his ears were like cauliflower. We're like, Dan, are you okay? And he says, uh, it's okay. Last night I ate some crab. And everybody's reaction is, of course, oh, you're allergic. You need to go to the hospital. <laughs> and um, he's like, no, no, no. This this happens pretty regularly because I I love crab. And I'm allergic, but it only happens one out of every three times. What? <laughs> yeah. It was a calculated risk. One out of every three times, he would turn into like the state puff marshmallow man. Yeah, so uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I suppose this is the part where you'd bring Dan in. I should have called in sick that day. This, of course, is Dan. I think that morning, it, it was mostly in the eyes that would have been kind of freaking people out. Um, very heavy eyelids, kind of probably a sunken look to them. Dan did confirm everything that Ben said and more. He's been allergic to crab and lobster since he was a kid. The night before this incident, he had eaten crab and he got the worst reaction he had had in years. It was a wake-up call. Not that he was going to stop eating crab and lobster. No, no, he was going to keep doing that. But now he'd do it. Only if I have Benadryl uh, as, a, as a sort of aperitif, and only if I have an inhaler, and just in case it were to spread to my lungs, and, um, and I have an EpiPen. An EpiPen, if you've never heard of it, is the injection that you stab yourself with in an emergency if you get a life-threatening allergic reaction. And this is his system. And he says it's working for him. And no, his doctor does not know. He risks this twice a year or so. He says his wife's not so crazy about it. Partly because the Benadryl makes him really sleepy. But uh, the, 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 the poisoning myself, it's not that bad. Uh, I, like I said, I get sleepy from the Benadryl. That's the worst part is I get really tired. But if you find yourself saying the sentence, the poisoning myself is not that bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think there's something probably to that. Uh, you know, I like it. What can I say? This whole thing made me think of some book that you would read about the decline of the Roman Empire, of people eating so much that they would have to throw up so they could eat some more. This is like someday people are going to write, you know, what was America like back in its heyday? Well, what it was like was people with severe allergies would eat the thing that they are allergic to, but just have meds at the ready to stab themselves with and cure themselves. But, you know, reaching out to friends and family and to strangers over the Internet this past two weeks, I have learned that what Dan did is actually not that uncommon. I do have willpower, but when it comes to the whole pizza thing, I don't hesitate. I just go ahead and eat it. Ruthie Zinchuk in Charlotte, North Carolina, is lactose intolerant. She can't digest milk or cheese or any dairy product, which is a problem because as a transplanted Jersey girl, she says, she likes her pizza. When we do have pizza, out of nowhere, I'll get severe stomach cramping and I'll have to go to the bathroom, like, immediately. <laughs> like, it's no joke. And so how often do you have pizza now? I would say at least a couple times a week. Oh, a couple times it's, a week? Yeah. It's always our go-to when we don't know what to eat. My fiancé and I are like, well, I guess pizza will work. And he, he'll always just look at me and say, really? Are you sure? 
In Cleveland, Ohio, Elise Hagesfeld and her older sister and her younger sister and her mom and her daughter are all allergic to uh, tomatoes, citrus, pineapple, strawberries in various combinations. Elise herself gets hives. It makes her face blotchy. She gets itchy. But they all continue to eat this stuff. I don't know if I have any great stories about it, because we just do it all the time. (laughs) We apparently are a family that has absolutely no self-control or good sense. I'm not sure which, but whatever. I like it. (laughs) Which is, of course, pretty much what Dan said, and what my senior producer's mother-in-law told me, too. Her name is Barbara Melman, and I reached her on vacation. She said that a couple years ago, after some abdominal surgeries, she had a few episodes where she got incredibly sick throwing up, rushing to the emergency room, getting an IV, an anti-nausea medication, until she realized that each time this happened, she'd eaten popcorn or nuts or trail mix before, and so she got those from her diet. But over time, she has snuck that stuff back in. And being on vacation now, I've got a room full of popcorn and trail mix. (laughs) You do right now? I do. I'm staring at it as we're speaking. Mm -hmm. Wait, don't you think you're playing with fire? Well, you know, it's not going to kill me. And if it does, I guess I won't. No, it won't kill me. No, I mean, it's just throwing up. You know, it's not not like I have to go through surgery. Just a quick trip to the hospital, an IV, Mm -hmm. some medication. Mm -hmm. And meet some nice people and and leave. The ER is a virtual laboratory of dysfunctional behaviors and bad choices. Do you just feel like as a doctor, like, what is wrong with people? Oh, every day. Every day. This is Michelle DeVito, an emergency room doctor at an urban hospital in Washington, D.C., and she says that nearly every day she sees somebody with a food allergy who has eaten the food that they're not supposed to and ended up in her ER. It's such a thing that it's not up for debate. Dr. DeVito told me story after story. There are the people with esophageal problems who are not supposed to eat steak who come in again and again, the same people with steak caught in their throats, looking guilty, avoiding eye contact with her, requiring a gastroenterologist to be called in for an emergency endoscopy. How much of what you see in an ER is people who are their own worst enemies? Oh, I think maybe half. I think that the smokers, the out-of-control diabetics, the people who get in a car accident from text messaging on their phone. I think so much of the pathology we see in the ER is a result of of bad choices, and some of them decades of bad choices. I think that once we become adults, most of us are aware of the different ways in which we can be our own worst enemies, not just with what we eat and with our health, but in how we deal with people, how we handle certain situations. Well, in this hour, Prepare to meet people who make my problems and yours when it comes to this seem like nothing. We have people who create problems for themselves in spectacular, life-changing ways that they do not know how to stop. We have one man who finds himself suddenly unable to do his job, others who are sabotaging relationships, and they cannot control themselves when they do it. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. Stay with us. Back one, aces are wild. Ken Pusin is a baseball fan and a lifelong supporter of the St. Louis Cardinals. And he had the same experience that a lot of Cardinal fans had back on October 3rd, 2000, 
watching his team play the Atlanta Braves. It was the first game of the National League playoffs. I remember exactly where I was. I was at Johnny's Hall of Fame, which is a sports bar in Des Moines. I was sitting at a table. I had a big glass of iced tea and a patty melt sandwich. The Cardinals score six runs in the first inning. This is going to be fantastic. The starting pitcher for the Cardinals in this game was Rick Ankeel, a young phenom who'd had a great rookie season. He pitched two innings, no problem. But in the third, he lost control. I don't know where the first wild pitch went, but it was like you, you thought to yourself, you know, it slipped out of his hands. It's like one of those scenes that they show, like the pitcher stumbling and the ball goes up in the air. And then it happened again. You're still kind of thinking, okay, maybe the nervousness of the moment or whatever, but you're not thinking this is going to be a big problem. He's, he's going to settle down. And then it, it keeps happening. I'm thinking there has to be some sort of physical uh, explanation for this. You know, his there's something wrong with his arm. Uh, this isn't even Little League quality wild pitches. It's beyond that. I mean, it's, it's like you would have to try to throw it this badly. And I'm at this bar, and people are laughing at him. And Keel gets pulled from the game. Cardinals win. And in the next round of playoffs, they're up against the New York Mets. And so they bring Ankiel out to try again for the second game of the series. He lasts two-thirds of an inning. He doesn't even get out of the first inning. Throws two wild pitches, walks three. It's literally like watching your kid in a peewee game. And a wild pitch. He's got guys in the third row ducking. Friendly's ducking back there. Bob, you all right down there? You ducking? You, you feel like you're safe behind that screen? And as a fan, you're just... This, this can't be happening. It's disbelief. I, I don't believe this. Then you get angry at him. What, what's he trying to do out there? What's, what's going on? And then you start feeling sorry for him. And this is borderline ridiculous. On a human level, that's the other horrible part of this. He was, he's naked in front of the world. He's out there trying to get this back, and it ain't coming back. You feel horrible for him. Yeah. And Keel's bad streak eventually got him sent down to the minor leagues. He stopped pitching. He came back to the major leagues as an outfielder. But watching in Keel that day in the bar made Ken think of a different player from years before, Steve Blass, who played for Pittsburgh, whose name has become shorthand for any pitcher who suddenly becomes his own worst enemy and loses the ability to throw the ball. They call it Steve Blass disease. Blass was an all-star on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Older fans remember him winning Game 7 of the 1971 World Series for the Pirates. After the series, he had a great season in 72, won 19 games, and then in 1973, for no apparent reason, no physical injury of any kind, he stopped being able to throw strikes. He never recovered. It ended his career. It was a player falling apart for purely psychological reasons, which can happen to any athlete in any sport, of course. But the suddenness of Blass's fall and the visibility of his fall, he was one of the leading pitchers in baseball. And he just lost it. It got people's attention. And if you want to understand what Steve Blass' disease is about, one place you can go is Steve Blass. So I'm sitting in my living room with my wife. We're watching the, the playoffs with the Cardinals. And uh, Rick Ankiel starts throwing the ball all over the place, behind people, over to the backstop. Turns out Steve Blass was watching that same Cardinals game that Ken Fusen saw. And I turned to my wife, Karen, and I said, Karen, I'm predicting within the next five minutes the phone will ring. Well, three minutes later, it rang, and uh, I picked it up and said, Hi, Paul. Uh, my good friend Paul Meyer, beat writer for the Pirates, who was covering the playoffs for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, he said, How do you know it's me? I said, well, Of course it's you. It, somebody just went 
went off the off the planet again. How many interviews have you given about this over the years? Do you think I have an eight hundred number? <laughs> I mean, whenever anybody you know, when when Rick Ankeel imploded in the playoffs, when Mark Wollers was doing his thing, Steve Sachs, Chuck Knobloch, uh and I know why there's interest. I understand. I understand that people are making a living. It's, it's a it's a curious subject. It's a fascinating subject to go from 19 wins to three to none, and then and then out. So uh, I've I've had a great deal of patience with it. Steve West turns 70 this coming Wednesday. And next month, he's publishing an autobiography called A Pirate for Life. The title refers to his 10 years as a player and to the nearly three decades after that that he served as a Pirates color commentator on the air. He says that he wrote the book to tell the story that you can come back from the kind of public collapse that he suffered. In the immediate aftermath, he got a job selling school rings. He says he drank too much. He says it was hard to go out to the grocery store and be recognized by people. The book covers but does not dwell on how his pitching career came apart which he calls the abyss. He says he can't name exactly when his problem began, what game it was. He remembers it as just a gradual slide. There was not one specific issue, item, time, at bat, game. And to this day, uh, I don't know why. I don't know what caused that. Uh, There's still frustration in me because I never had a sore arm and I had the perfect body. You know, I wasn't heavy or anything, but I, I still don't know exactly what caused it. I've been going back and reading, and and I saw uh, Roger Angel wrote a piece years ago for for The New Yorker. Yeah, a really beautiful story. And um, he tries to figure out, well, what game was it? And and he names an an April 1973 game with the Cubs that you pitched. And then then he says, maybe it's that game. And then then there's another game on June 11th with with the Braves in Atlanta. And and I was wondering, do you even remember either of those games? Like, do do those games stand out as significant? I don't remember the Cubs game. Uh, mm. If he's referring to the game where I came in relief in Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was the case, I remember it more than any other game I've pitched in my life because it was just, it was the absolute bottom uh, of, the, of the pit. And uh, I remember after that game, we flew to Cincinnati, and I didn't even go to my hotel room. I just walked the streets of Cincinnati until until dawn, and it was just one of the awfulest games and, and awfulest nights that I've ever had in my life. And, and so, and so, what do you remember of, of the experience of being on the mound during that game? Like, like, did did it occur to you when you were on the mound? Okay, something different is happening now that I haven't experienced before. Yeah, it's that game in Atlanta. I said, you know, there is something, something tragically wrong here, and uh, I, I am lost out of here on the mound. I don't have a clue of what I'm doing. I start to wind up, and it just uh, kind of almost freeze, and there's no, there's no flow, there's no rhythm. I knew I shouldn't be out there, but I didn't want to quit. I, I wanted to keep trying to, to find it. Roger Angel's account of, of that game, I mean, I, I'm not even sure if I should read this or not. I, I, don't oh, I, I know it by heart. Yeah, oh, really? <laughs> All right. But, uh, but Just for, for, for listeners then, so you get called in uh, in the fifth inning, and the Pirates are trailing already, so, so you're coming into a losing game. They're trailing by 8-3. to three. And uh, Roger Angel writes, Blast walk the first two men, he faced, gave up a stolen base in a wild pitch and a run-scoring single before retiring the side. In the sixth, Blast walked Darrell Evans. He walked Mike Lum, throwing one pitch behind him in the process, which allowed Evans to move down to second. Dusty Baker singled, driving in a run. Ralph Gar grounded out. Davey Johnson singled, scoring another run. Marty Perez walked. Pitcher Ron Reed singled, driving in two more runs and was wild pitched to second. Johnny Oates walked. 
Frank Tepidino singled, driving in two runs, and Steve Blass was finally relieved. Yeah, yeah, it was it was awful. It was just a, it was a nightmare. But uh, you, uh, I've been taught and developed, and I firmly believe you don't quit. Uh, I just wasn't wired that way. Uh, and I wanted to be convinced. If it wasn't there, I wanted to be totally convinced. And that's why I pitched all of 73, obviously, and then all of 74, which was another nightmare in the minor leagues. And then in 75, I said, that's enough, uncle. I've, I've had enough. I, I read you, you said to a, a Pittsburgh sports writer named Joe Starkey uh, years ago, underneath, very privately and very personally, is a feeling I got cheated and did you did you feel that it's, it's almost like some foreign thing had taken over, like you were hit by something that you couldn't control? Well, I, I, I certainly had no control over it, nor did I understand it. Uh, I was just uh, uh, confused. I mean, I, I would sit up in my backyard at 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning thinking, my God, what has happened to me? What, what is this? Uh, somebody put a curse on me or something? Uh, and, and I never believed that. You know, I don't believe in that junk. But uh, it was just... It was, it was devastating in that I didn't know what to do about it. In the decades since Steve Blass stopped pitching, researchers have been trying to figure out what to do about it and what is going on when a player falls apart like he did. And they believe that basically the problem comes down to thinking. When an elite athlete is at his or her best, when they're in the zone, their movements are automatic. They're not thinking about how their wrist turns or their knee bends or any of the other details. And when researchers bring athletes into the lab with a simulated batting cage or a putting green, when they tell them to think about the mechanics of what they're doing, to notice where exactly the bat is moving when they're swinging or how their elbow shifts when they're putting, the athletes, the overwhelming majority of them, start to choke. Thinking is the problem. And interestingly, two researchers named Stephen Weiss and Arthur Reber have a paper called Curing the Dreaded Steve Blass Disease, which is going to be published in the Journal of Sports Psychology in Action. And they argue that when well-meaning coaches tell an athlete in a slump to focus more on the mechanics, which they say is common still, the coach can actually make things worse, not better, because he's telling a player who's already thinking too much to think even more. We have to somehow figure out a way to get you to stop thinking. You have to find some sort of mental distraction that allows them to go back to just rely upon their instincts. This is uh, Rick Wolf. He was a baseball player himself in the minor leagues, and he went on to counsel professional athletes whose minds were working against them. Wolf's job was to redirect them, stop them from thinking about the mechanics of what they were doing. So if you're having problems as a pitcher throwing strikes, I need for you to stop thinking about or worrying about that And as you wind up, I want you to think about something totally different. It might be, I want you to really focus on the catcher's uh, left shin guard. I'm just trying to get them to stop thinking about where their arm angle is and how they're delivering the ball to the plate. And does that work? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. It just seems like a hard thing because the more you try not to think about something, the more you're thinking about it. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I didn't say it was easy. (laughs) Do most of them get over it? Do most of them not get over it? I would say it's about 50%. Some of the things the studies say that athletes might focus on if they want to avoid thinking. They can focus on the catcher's mitt or on wherever it is the ball is supposed to go. 
Golfers can focus on one word, like a general thought that describes the swing they want, like smooth. Steve Blass tried everything to get out of his abyss. He tried pitching from his knees. He tried pitching from second base. He tried pitching every night in the bullpen, and he tried to take a week off, see if the rest helped him. He watched himself on video and compared it to video of when he was pitching well. He went to a hypnotist and to a psychologist. He learned meditation and practiced it. When a fan suggested changing to looser underwear, he laughed about it with his teammates, and then he tried it. Some of these cures focused him more on his mechanics. Some of them tried to take his mind off of his mechanics. None of them worked. When you see other players go through this, like watching Rick Ankiel on television, is it hard for you to watch? Oh, very difficult. In fact, Ankiel was still trying to pitch when I was broadcasting, uh, when they would come into Pittsburgh or uh, and and I watched one of his last games, and it was just uh, it was heartbreaking because I I knew what he's going through, and so it was, I, I I don't want to say it was difficult for me because I you know I, I, what I do I I try to do professionally, but it was very very uncomfortable for me to watch, very sad for me to watch. You you must have said something during the broadcast though when you saw him. Uh, I said yeah I said this is very difficult for me to watch. I'm, I'm not enjoying this. Uh, you know the Pirates are are benefiting because of what he's going through, but. Uh, uh, it's not the most comfortable thing for me to watch because it brings back some memories. So there's a chapter in your book that's called They Named a Disease After Me. Is it annoying to have your name attached to this? Uh, it, uh, it's not my favorite thing. I'm not crazy about it, but I, I understand it. Uh, I, I get Every once in a while I get a little frustrated and say, you know what, uh, you know, why don't we talk a little more about the seventh game of the World Series? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Come on! I mean, the average major league career is three point seven years, and I pitched for ten years and won a hundred games. Come on, let's talk about some of that stuff. Let's go. I mean, you're, you're talking about two years out of a charmed life. I, I lived my dream. I mean, how many people get to do that? So I, I had a couple of difficult years, very difficult years, but uh, I've been blessed. And I'm not a religious person, but I've been blessed. Wes says a few years ago he met with a sports psychiatrist named Richard Crowley, who taught him a technique. He says it's something to do with trading negative thoughts for positive ones. And decades after he left baseball, he got back on the mound. He now pitches games where former pros and amateurs play together. It is a long way from the majors. But Blast says he got what he wanted, the pleasure of throwing the ball again. I had the joy of throwing a baseball since I was eight years old, he says. And he really missed that. Back to the conversation. There's this new podcast out there that's trying to reimagine and reinvent one of the old radio formats, a format that is barely holding on. You barely hear this format outside of Prairie Home Companion or Bible stations. Radio drama. They're trying to make radio drama that doesn't sound like an antique thing from the 1940s, but feels completely contemporary. What, what I find interesting about this is that they, it's like they took uh, the sound of programs like Radiolab or our program, and they use all the production techniques and tools that go with that, but with actors and a drama. So what you're about to hear is a work of fiction from producer-director Jonathan Mitchell and The Truth. It was our first date. We had never met. Hey, get you anything? 
Uh, me? Yeah? We'd emailed, but we hadn't even spoken. Well, I should wait. And I was waiting for her. Waiting and waiting and waiting. Hello? Hi, Ben. It's Erica calling. Hey, Erica. How are you? <laughs> Hi. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm running just a little bit late. Okay. That's okay. That's totally okay. I'm here. Um, oh, Tulip, uh, um, you know, Tulip's been sick lately, so I, I had to, I, I finally took her to the vet. she okay? Uh, she is. She Good. is. Thank you. The, uh, do you know how long you're going to be? All right. So very soon. Great. Um, do you want me to order you a drink so it's ready for when you get here? Uh, sure. What do you want? Do you not want to do this? Because I, I, we don't have to do this. You know what? Um, my reception's really bad. I don't think I'm hearing right. But, um, uh, let me just run outside real quick. All right. That is better. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hi. You know what, Erica? Hi. I think I see you. Do you I, see I, me? I'm right outside the bar. I'm waving. Yes, I see you. I hey! Hi. Hi. Um, are you alright? Yeah, I am okay. I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't mean to say that. That was really unnecessary. I'm sorry. I'm not sure what I said. Uh, but I'm sorry. You know, I was, I was really actually looking forward to this. What do you mean you were looking forward to this? What are you doing? You're walking the wrong way. Are you still there? Erica, are you joking? What is going on? Erica! I mean, I was really confused and... Hello, are you on the phone still? What the hell? I couldn't tell if she was still on or if she hung up, and I'm looking at my phone, and I see that I had had recently downloaded this app that records phone calls. And I looked at it and was like, I gotta listen to that recording. started out the same exact way as I had just recalled it. Then it starts to sound like not me. Do you know how long you're going to be? Look, I just got out of the subway and walking down the street, so feel very Okay, great. Do you want me to order you a drink so it's ready for when you get here? Uh, sure. What do you want? Do you not want to... It's the exact same words that I believe I had just said, but when I listened to the tape, it sounded like, not me, but this jerk. Can you hear me? Yeah, hi. You know what, Erica? I think I see you. You see me? I'm right outside the bar. I'm, I'm... I'm waving. Yes, I see you. I see you. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Hi. I don't know who that was. That wasn't me. I'm not that person. You know, I was... I was really actually looking forward to this. What do you mean you're looking forward to this? What are you doing? Forget it. I'm glad she hung up, because, God, what would I have said next? I wanted to like run after her and find her and apologize, but I was like, I should never say another word as long as I live. You tell me right now, uh, do I sound rude to you? 
Does that sound rude when I say, do I sound rude? I am confused. Wait, honey, just call her. Call her and try no, again. It's, it's just not like I can pick up the phone and call her unless I know what the Please, hell I'm doing wrong. It's probably just a misunderstanding. Well, could you listen to the tape and tell me if oh, I sound... Dan, I don't want to do that. Why not? Because that's not my... <laughs> stop that. You stop that right. Get down. Um, Get off that. You... It's just one phone call, Mom. It's no, really short. Honey, I am not listening to your discussion why, why not? with a girl. Why not? That's just creepy. Do I sound creepy? You sound like you sound. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Um, well, here we are, huh? I'm so glad to finally meet you. I just was testing out some recordings Hi. of myself. To hear like your dress. whether or not it was really the device or the, the way it was recorded or something. Your laugh is contagious. And then I would play it back. Well, here we are, huh? And it sounded fine. I'm so glad to finally meet you. I took the recording of the call between me and Erica, and I loaded it in my computer, and I wanted to analyze it. So I divided it up, took my side of the conversation, and cut that out and separated the two. Hi, Ben, it's Erica calling. <laughs> Hi, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm running just a little bit late. Categories, subcategories, I just put all her questions in one file, and then all of her statements in another file, and then... Do you not want to do this? Because I, I, we don't have computers. I mean, yeah, she was upset. Yes, I see you. I she was also... Hi. Patient and yeah, I am okay. Sincere and genuine and authentic. You know, I was, I was really actually looking forward to this. And I thought, well, what if I put something in there that I know is nice? Well, here we are, huh? Hi. I'm so glad to finally meet you. I was really actually looking forward to this. Yeah, me too, definitely. It sounded great. So, I, you know, I, I just, for fun, kind of expanded on that. and Oh, these are for you. I know I didn't need to. I think you said these were your favorite, right? Yeah, Philip. Yep, they're for you. That was really unnecessary. Well, you only get one first date. Do you want to do this? Again? Yeah. You want to set up a second date this early in our first date? Why couldn't it have gone that way? Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> you know, I remember being a lot better at ice skating. Do you not want to do this? Because I, I, we don't have to do this. You're just saying that because we're both unable to get back up. <laughs> yeah, hi. Hi. What do you call that awesome move you were just attempting? Walking down the street. You really sold it with the whole falling hard on your butt thing. <laughs> Are you okay? And the article said that like 90% of the world's oceans are unexplored. You know, and we think we know everything, but most of our knowledge is... Really unnecessary. Right. Yeah, exactly. Totally unnecessary. I mean, do you think that there are things that will always remain a mystery? 
what? Say it. What? I'm so sorry. It's okay. I know what the problem is. We're working with a limited supply of words here. I, I know. <sighs> uh, let me think. Okay, how's your steak? Good? Sure. 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 I wish you could just say that it was awesome or succulent or terrible, like like an old shoe. Then I'm so sorry. No, Erica, you you need more words. You don't have to do this. Let me just get you some more words. Erica, hi, it's Ben. Ben. Yeah, we used to, uh, well, we almost went out on a date. Oh, Ben, yes, hi, Ben. <laughs> hi. Uh, how are you? I'm fine. Good, me too. Um, I'm just calling because I felt like, uh, it, uh, I just wanted to say that I felt bad about how things ended up and I wanted to apologize, so. Oh, God, no, it's, uh, Cool. I just, you know, I made you feel really upset, and I feel bad about that, so... Don't, I just... don't worry about it. I, I wasn't that upset, so... Well, then, I mean, you just walked away like that, so I just right. figured you're definitely upset. Right, Well, I, um, I, I walked away... I was, I was very upset because of earlier that night, my, um, my dog, Tulip, died oh. in my arms so sorry. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thanks. Sorry, but she did, she didn't die that day, though. What? She didn't die that day. That's not, that's not what happened. Yes, she did. She, she died. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, but, well, you just were coming from the vet, and you were just said that she was sick. Okay, well, I think I remember when my dog died. No, that's, well... It's wrong, because, I mean, I know you, I know what you said. Are you kidding me? No, I could play it back to you if you want, but, what I mean, you it's... Play it back to me? Well, I recorded the call because, um... You recorded our phone call? Yeah, I just accidentally, it was an accident. Oh, my God. I recorded it, and I've listened to it a bunch of times, so I know exactly <laughs> what you said. So, yeah, I know. That's super um, creepy. Well... Wait, are you recording you, this phone call right now? Oh my god, what is your problem? No, I'm not... You're... Why, what is your problem? Because... Why would you say that your dog is just sick if she's dead? Or either that or you're lying now about ben, your dog? And I, I lied, okay? I lied, Ben. Get over it. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry about your dog, too. I know that's My really dog is too. fine. She's not dead, okay? God. I'm sorry. I don't understand because... You I'm... want to know what happened, Ben? Well, yeah. I met someone else. The night before you and I were supposed to go out, I met this great guy, and we fell in love. Because he's a 
acted so crazy. Yeah, you were like 40 minutes late. You know, it was a, it was a really weird night. Yeah. And I couldn't deal, and I wanted to see Derek. Oh. Okay, and I left. Wait, so you planned to blow me off? If that's what I did, then that's what I did. How do you fall in love with someone in one night? I just wait. Oh no, my phone's gonna die. Let, I'm gonna. Can I call you right back? Actually, I'm no, gonna call you right back. Hello. Hey, we were talking and I had to. Um, yeah. Hi. How you doing? I'm fine. Good. Uh, I just needed to tell you something. Sure. It's. It's over, Erica. No. Hey, come on now, no. We gave it a shot, you know, but the thing is, you're not real, and real you is right. This is super creepy. It's super creepy. Yeah. What the hell have I been doing? I acted like a jerk, and I don't know. It's been like I'm trying to undo it or figure it out or something, and I mean, the reality is I acted like a jerk because... At that moment, I was a jerk. Don't, don't worry about it. I, I wasn't that upset, so... Well, that's good. Yeah. Goodbye, Erica. Are you still there? No. Yeah, me neither. Those actors Ed Herbstman and Tammy Sager, with Libby George as the mom and Christian Pollock very briefly as the bartender. The story was produced and directed by Jonathan Mitchell, who also did the music. The story was written by Jonathan Mitchell, Ed Herbstman, and Melanie Hoops. If you liked uh, what you just heard, they're doing one like this every two weeks on their podcast that's called The Truth. Their website, thetruthapm.com, or look for The Truth Podcast at the iTunes store. Coming up, a man who does not approve of homosexuality, whose biggest problem is he is a homosexual. The stories of being your own worst enemy continue in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Own Worst Enemy. Stories of people who thwart themselves in ways that they do not seem to be able to control. We've arrived at Act 3 of our show. Act three, just as I am. This last story is about somebody who was at war with himself. He was a gay man, a Christian, who did not want to be gay or act on his feelings for men. And he didn't just want to suppress this impulse in himself. He wasn't just his own worst enemy. He tried to get other gay men and women to suppress that part of themselves as well. But then, uh, through a series of actions that can only be described as very Christian, this man changed. Jonathan Menhivar tells what happened. The guy's name was John Smid, and he ran an organization called Love in Action, one of those Christian places that claims they can cure people of their homosexuality, make them not exactly straight, but ex-gay. It was in Memphis, Tennessee, and at the time, it was the oldest and most prominent ex-gay ministry in the world. One former client told me it was considered the Cadillac of ex-gay programs. 
The rules were harsh, the level of shame intense. Former clients have spent years in therapy unwinding what happened to them at Love and Action. And John Smid was the head of that group for more than two decades. As for his own homosexuality, John never tried to hide it. It was part of his testimony he'd give at church and ex-gay events. John was married at 19, and then after having two kids, he realized he was gay. He got divorced, had a couple gay relationships. John says he was also pretty promiscuous. And then in his late 20s, he found God and stopped living as a gay man. This is John giving that testimony on an old Christian TV segment. John says he was in this little country church in Iowa. I just remember sitting in the pew, and this voice spoke into my brain. John called my name. You don't have to live like this anymore. It was just that point when God spoke, and I gained permission to ask for freedom. And I started praying every day. I just kept saying every day, God, get me out of this. Get me out of this. I'm miserable. God, get me out of this. And eventually I got to the point where I left the partners and the relationships, and that was the end of my homosexuality. John made a new life for himself, dated women, and then he married one, his second wife. He soon got a job encouraging other gay men to live the way he was. And then, almost 20 years after John joined Love in Action, he decided to expand their mission. Love in Action had always been for adults, but John says he was seeing a dramatic increase in teens coming out. Their parents were calling Love in Action more and more. So they started a new program, specifically for teenagers. At the time, Love in Action had just bought a new building. It was a step up for them. Then, John came to work. It was the first day of the new teen program. It was 8.30, June 6th, 2005, sitting in my office, and one of my staff members came in and said, a client just came and told us that there's a big protest outside. And then what did you do? Freaked out. It's okay to be gay. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I, I, I felt incredibly uh, exposed. Uh, it was the first day in our building. We had just moved in. Homosexuality is not a sin. Homosexuality is not an addiction. The new program for teens was called Refuge, and it's why the protesters were there. Love in Action was a voluntary program, but Refuge was different, at least according to a 16-year-old kid named Zach Stark. A week earlier, Zach had posted on his MySpace page, saying that he'd come out, and his parents didn't take it well, so they were forcing him to go to Refuge. They tell me that there is something psychologically wrong with me, Zach wrote. I'm a big screw-up to them, who isn't on the path God wants me to be on. It was impossible not to want to help him. This is Morgan John Fox. He's a Memphis filmmaker, and he was pretty much the ringleader of the protest. He'd read Zach's blog and pulled together other activists and a bunch of Zach's friends from high school. Morgan is gay himself, and he filmed a lot of the protest. He and all the other protesters couldn't believe what they were reading on Zach's blog. To them, it seemed like a cry for help. And then he goes on to explain that he ran away for a day, and now he's come back, and he's writing these blog entries in the middle of the night, and that if he gets caught, you know, it could be very bad. And then he went on to post the rules of this organization. The kids in Love and Action's teen program went home to their parents every night, but they had to adhere to the rules no matter where they were. There was no hugging or physical contact allowed, though brief handshakes or an affirmative hand on a shoulder were okay, 
any, quote, temptations, fantasies, or dreams were supposed to be confessed to a staff member. Men were supposed to dress like men and women like women. And for some reason, no one was allowed to wear anything by Abercrombie & Fitch or Calvin Klein. The protest clearly had two intended targets. Zach, who they were there to support, and John Smid, the guy they were shouting at through their bullhorns. Morgan was there for weeks, making every attempt to get through to John. We knew that John Smid was the head of the organization, and essentially he was our enemy in this situation. Why they can't question your policies? Why John Smid? He never came and addressed us. There was um, a one day um, he was uh, driving, and he stopped for one moment, and we made sure at that very moment we saw him because it was kind of like this, uh, oh man, I don't know, it's like seeing Sasquatch. You know, we never got to see him. And then so, so when we would actually see him in person, it was kind of like, okay, this is our moment. We got to do, we got to do something right or, you know, we got to prove something. The protests at Love and Action became a national news story that got picked up by CNN, The New York Times, and Good Morning America. Eight weeks later, when it was all over and Zach Stark had finished the program, Morgan wanted to interview John Smith for the documentary he'd started working on about the protests. John says he didn't want anything to do with Morgan. Of course, I understood he had this organization called Queer Action Coalition, and, you know, it was just this horribly negative thing that I just didn't want anything to do with. And he called and wanted to meet with me, and I thought, okay, how do I set up the safeguards? Because you got to be careful when these gay activists come around. You know, they're going to twist your words, and somehow they're, you know, they've got an alternative agenda, and they just want to use your words negatively. And so I asked one of my staff members to come in and meet with me with him, because I didn't want to meet with him alone, because I thought, certainly I need some kind of accountability here. And so and I walk into his office. I, the meeting is at Love and Action headquarters. Um, I walk in, and he sits down behind this big desk, and, and one of his staff members sits down beside him. And I sit across from this big table, and the night before, I had really thought about things I would say and, and having this opportunity, possibly I would debate him, or there's, you know, I wanted to have an eloquent argument. Um, I had like a six-page document that I prepared and studied, hoping that those were points that I would hit. But I sit across the table from him, and he's like, well, and I'm like, yeah and then literally like 10 seconds of silence i'm sitting there no one is saying anything i'm just like oh my god and the last thing that was across my mind that moment was to debate or start arguing with him and so i just started telling him my story i just started telling him about my childhood when i came out all the things that i faced um the pain that i felt of not feeling necessarily accepted by peers or family and 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 about that process of of going through all that but then being in a relationship and being out and feeling loved and 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 feeling a part of a community here in Memphis and how much healthier I felt and 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 then went on to explain that's why I protested your organization all of these you know past few weeks and I thought wait a minute this is not what I expected this guy seems to be vulnerable and honest and humble and it's like this isn't I don't hate this guy. Um, how could I hate him? He just came in my office and treated me with respect and was honest himself, and he seemed f- open, and, and um, I, uh, I, I didn't know what to do with it. They talked for half an hour, and then Morgan asked John if he'd agree to an interview. John turned him down. 
For a year after that meeting, there was a kind of ceasefire. John and Morgan didn't talk to each other at all. Then Morgan and some of the other protesters attended an open meeting at Love and Action. Morgan says they were just trying to keep an eye on them, see what Love and Action were up to. And uh, it, it was funny because the thing that John talked about at that open meeting um, was this idea of how we respond to our parents or how we, how we kind of um, communicate with them and, and deal with the wounds that might be there. It was interesting because at the time I wasn't that close with my father. And surprisingly, I'm sitting there listening to him say this stuff and, and something just clicks in my head that I had been kind of attempting to relate to my father for a long time on my terms only and not looking at him as a person with full emotions and issues that he's maybe is dealing with. And so that was the, the, the building blocks towards me uh, becoming closer with my father and, and, and mending that relationship. And, and so that's something that uh, I was extremely grateful for. And so I followed up that meeting and sending John an email. It's like, Hey, look, I, I still totally disagree with everything you're doing. However, I just want to let you know that uh, it's pretty cool that uh, I learned something from from your meeting. So just wanted to say thanks, and uh, I appreciate that part of it, even though the the rest of it needs to go. And so I'm thinking, okay, this doesn't match. Again, my favorite enemy protester is is actually complimenting me, and, and he's actually saying that I've had a positive impact. And that kind of blew me away. And so I emailed him back, and I said, Morgan, you know, I would really like to talk with you personally. We should go out and have coffee if you'd like to do that because I've got some things I want to share with you. Morgan and John agreed to meet at a Starbucks. Morgan says the coffee lasted three hours. In these three hours, what are you guys talking about? Um, I mean, literally we're talking about like uh, like what's been going on. He's asking me questions about, oh, you're a, so you're a filmmaker. I looked you up on the internet a little bit, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and so I'm talking about my films. Um, basically, we talk about anything but the issues, which is fascinating. I mean, we're literally talking about um, talking about my job at, at this coffee shop. Yeah, I was going to say, um, it, it's, it's almost like an awkward first date. <laughs> uh, that's awkward. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, no, you know, you know, uh, I, not, not that there's no. something romantic going on, but are you concerned at any point that, that he actually has a crush on you? I was never concerned about him having a crush on me. I can't say a lot of my friends um, or, uh, you know, my significant other wasn't concerned about that. I mean, I certainly that was a joke by a lot of people like, oh, he's just trying to hook up with you. Oh, yeah. I, I had a couple of friends ask me, are you having an affair with Morgan? People were concerned about us meeting. You know, you shouldn't meet with Morgan alone because you could be tempted you know, I don't meet with single women or with married women by myself, so you shouldn't meet with a gay man by yourself. You know, is that going to be a problem for you? And I'm thinking, no, uh, I, sorry, Morgan, I, I, I have not had any romantic inclinations towards Morgan. <laughs> the Fox Mid Summits continued, but the refuge program for teens didn't. John shut it down, and over coffee, he told Morgan that refuge was a bad idea. Morgan says it was the first time he'd heard John admit that he had done anything wrong at Love and Action. It wasn't exactly a change of heart, though. John still believed he could provide ex-gay services to teens. Refuge, he thought, just turned out to be the wrong way to do it. But as time went on, Morgan felt that something significant was starting to shift in John. You know, he would ask questions to me. I mean, he was being more willing to hear feedback 
um, and and would specifically ask, well, what did you think about this, or what was it about this, or he was sort and, of and like also, like like using you as a focus group to see see how Love and Action was working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he even uh, you know I joked at some point about like he had said something on the news about well, you know, it's just like having to eat your peas. Sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do in response to these kids needing to go into refuge. And I was like, John, are you kidding me? Like having to eat your peas? And he laughed and was like, what, that didn't work? I mean, I mean, tell me, seriously, if it didn't work. I'm like, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's just like, are you serious? So so definitely things became, uh, though we weren't debating the issues, it became certainly more comfortable for me. I felt more comfortable to straight up say like, oh, come on, like, are you serious about this? Can you actually believe this? And he was listening. What happened between John and Morgan is the thing that almost never happens between people on opposite sides of a political issue. They sat down and talked and really listened to each other. Essentially, Morgan did a very Christian thing. At that first meeting, he turned the other cheek. John saw that and did the same. And it had an effect. John says that Morgan was the first gay person he met who wasn't in conflict over his sexuality. Morgan seemed normal and healthy, and it surprised John. In March 2008, John quietly resigned from Love in Action. It would be really satisfying if I could tell you that all that listening, all the sitting down over coffee with Morgan, snapped John out of the ex-gay stupor he'd been in for more than two decades. But that's not true. John told me when he left Love in Action... He hadn't actually changed his beliefs at all. He was still ex-gay, still believed that being gay was a sin. Then, last year, John posted this stunning admission on the website of a new ministry he'd started. He said that he had seen dramatic changes happen in people's lives when they walk through the transformation process with Jesus. But he wrote, quote, The transformation for the vast majority of homosexuals will not include a change of sexual orientation. Actually, I've never met a man who experienced a change from homosexual to heterosexual. That statement, coming from John, made news. Here's John with Chris Matthews on Hardball Last Fall. John, I guess the question a lot of people, gay and straight, will ask is what brought you to go public with this pretty important uh, observation among, with, since you've been experienced in this world that no one's ever gone through a successful, if you will, or a conversion of any kind from gay to straight. I think really one of the most significant things, Chris, is that within the gay community, there is... I want to make sure this is clear. John now says God embraces homosexuality, that God loves gays and lesbians, and he sees nothing wrong with their actions. He now fully supports faithful same-sex commitments, and he started a ministry that reaches out to gay people. But the new John Smith isn't exactly a crusader for the gay movement. He's still learning to navigate who he is, and whatever transformation he's going through, it's still incomplete. He's working it out in public, and it's clumsy. There have been times on his blog when he's used the word perversion while talking about homosexuality. He talks about promiscuity like it's something that gay men just can't avoid without help from God. The things he says now can still be so hurtful and confusing that a former client told me he wishes John would just lay low for a few years until he figures out what he wants to say. Morgan eventually got the interview he was looking for. He and John sat down and talked, on camera. And now they're doing Q&As together, talking to audiences about the documentary Morgan made. Recently, John made what's probably his biggest shift. He started calling himself gay. Not ex-gay. Not ex-ex-gay. Just gay. 
John and his wife are still married. It's obviously confusing for the two of them. But this is the uncomfortable place John Smith has lived in his whole life. When he was in his first marriage, in his late teens, he struggled because he was gay. Then he came out, and he struggled with that, so he became ex-gay. We'd all like to believe that as we get older, we know ourselves better, and things get easier. But it doesn't always work out that way. John says now he's kind of back to where he was in his early 20s, gay and out, just a lot older this time. He's still really conflicted about what that means. Jonathan Menhivar is one of the producers of our program. More information about the documentary that Morgan John Fox made is at loveinactionmovie.com. Our program was produced today by Lisa Pollack with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Sarah Koenig, Jonathan Manhivar, Brian Reed, Robin Semi, and Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon's our office manager. Production help from Matt Kilty. Music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Jim Moskowitz, Kevin Pang, Sion Bylock, who's the author of the book Choke, Stephen Weiss, Alexandra Berzon, Peterson Toscano, Matt Matolci, Jesse Allen, and Tommy Roach. Thanks to Steve Blass's co-author, Eric Sherman. Their book goes on sale May 1st. Thanks for help with our radio drama to Peter Clowney, Carrie Hillman, Chris Bannon, and WNYC. Rick Wolf, who you heard in Act One, does a radio show about sports parenting on New York's WFAN. He can be found online at askcoachwolf.com. Major League Baseball footage today was used with permission of Major League Baseball Properties, Inc., our website, where right now you can enter a contest to win a signed poster for our May 10th cinema event. Basically, we're going to be doing our show on stage with Mike Birbiglia, David Rakoff, Glenn Washington, and others and beaming it into movie theaters everywhere. Find a theater near you and get tickets before they sell out. You can do all that at thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who has totally figured out what we're up to here at the end of the program when we quote him. You got to be careful when these gay activists come around. You know, they're going to twist your words and somehow they're, you know, they've got an alternative agenda. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week. More stories of this American life. PRI Public Radio International.